It is 7 after the hour. I am Eric Erickson, and this is Atlanta's Evening News. The phone number here is 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. Uh, now that I've given you the phone number, just uh, don't call yet. <laughs> just g- give me a few minutes. Uh, I, I want to talk about Venezuela. We will get to the government shutdown. Um, the government is not reopening. If the president wants to cave today, he could uh, throw Wilbur Ross, the commerce secretary, under the bus, uh, say Ross sabotaged the messaging and fire him. Uh, what, what a boneheaded move. But we, we can get to all of that, but we really need to focus on Venezuela because it is becoming a, a big power moment. As you probably know, as you should know, Venezuela had a president named Hugo Chavez. And Hugo Chavez was a communist. He called himself a socialist. He's, he was a communist. One-party rule, uh, command and control economy, uh, very hostile to religion and the church. He was not as brutal as the Soviets, uh, Soviet-style communists, but he very much was a communist. And then, of course, uh, Hollywood uh, elite loved him, Sean Penn and others would go to Venezuela, and Chavez became very, very rich as his people became very, very poor. And he ultimately wound up in Cuba with cancer, I believe it was, and he died. Um, And is roasting in hell right about now. He was a horrible, horrible person. He left his country in the care of a man uh, named Maduro, who has made the country even worse. Inflation... In Venezuela is over, I think the last time I saw it, um, 210 or or no, it's 21 million percent in the last five years. I believe that is, and that sounds absurd, uh, but you need millions of Venezuelan, whatever its currency is, Venezuela dollar, whatever it is, you need millions of them to buy a loaf of bread. That's how bad inflation is. Basically, the Venezuelan government forgot about how monetary policy works, and they just decided when people weren't making any money, they confiscated uh, the private sector. They took over the oil company, they took over the energy companies, they took over the shipping companies, took over everything, and they literally just decided to print money for people. Well, you know, as the Romans found out, as Diocletian found out in the Roman Empire, uh, when you just print money... To have money, it causes the value of each individual coin to be reduced. Your money depends on a stable supply, and as you print more money, each dollar buys less and less. There's a supply and demand issue. Well, it hasn't worked out so well for the Venezuelans. There are now food shortages. There are now riots. Um, Businesses are crumbling. People are fleeing. There is actually a parasite, a massive parasite epidemic, ringworm, hookworm, and several other worms and parasites. Um, The mortality rate is awful. Venezuelans year over year for the last 10 years have gotten shorter, which is a terrible sign of malnutrition. The country is falling apart at the seams, and the Maduro regime has installed a uh, very ruthless military dictatorship to help them uh, that is willfully killing any opposition. One of the things Maduro did that is very much like uh, Caesar was to suspend, or uh, Palpatine, I guess I should say, from, from Star Wars. Uh, Palpatine suspended the Imperial Senate. Well, Maduro has suspended the National Congress in Venezuela. 
the National Congress in Venezuela, the people elected the opposition, very much like the Democrats here in this country were swept into power in Congress. It would be very similar to the president of the United States suspending Congress, which he can't do under our Constitution. In Venezuela, the president there, the dictator, decided he could suspend their National Congress because the opposition became the majority. They then carted off to jail the opposition leader. Well, now the National Congress is is refusing basically to leave the building, and they have named uh, a, a guy named, uh, I believe his first name is Juan uh, Guaido, as the new president of Venezuela. They have purported to impeach Maduro. The military is aligned behind Maduro, and now the United States is backing the opposition leader as the lawfully elected leader of Venezuela. He is a free market capitalist, uh, Christian conservative guy. He is uh, very, very much a, a liberty believer in, as far as Venezuela leaders go. Well, the Russians and the Chinese and the Turks, very curious about the Turks here, they've now come out in defense of Maduro. Maduro's soldiers are surrounding Catholic churches in the country, threatening to kick in the doors of the churches and drag out the people hiding in the churches seeking sanctuary. Very medieval. The people in the country are starving. There are riots in the streets today, and the Maduro regime gave the United States yesterday 72 hours to vacate our embassy. He's kicking us out. There is a real diplomatic problem here with that issue. And it is why shots may be fired and why we may be headed into a military crisis in South America. To understand why and what's happening with the military crisis. So if we are not recognizing the government of uh, Maduro. And Maduro sends the military to evict the Marines and diplomatic corps from our embassy. When Guaido, the person we recognize as president, has said they can stay. Well, that puts us in a conundrum, doesn't it? The military backs Maduro, who we no longer recognize as lawful. The Russians, the Chinese, the Turks, and even some Democrats in Congress recognize Maduro. We say he's not the president. He's told us to leave. Well, if we leave, then we're honoring the request of a man we say is not president of that country. We're honoring the request of a man who says, uh, who we say has no authority to make us leave. If we don't honor his request, he could order the military in Venezuela to arrest the Marines and diplomatic corps or shoot them. If our Marines defend our embassy and fire back, well, you have the makings of a military crisis. Now, there are people who very much in the White House want us to hold firm on this and believe we're doing the right thing. But there are a number of Republicans and a lot of Democrats who do not think we have the bandwidth for the stand. They all largely agree this is the right thing to do, but they don't think we had the bandwidth to deal with Afghanistan, to deal with Syria, to deal with this, to deal with everything else we're dealing with. The fact of the matter is the American people have been failed by a series of presidents going back to Bill Clinton, and this includes George W. Bush, 
who have been so focused and occupied on the Middle East, on Europe, and on Asia, that they largely have ignored Central and South America. One of the other things that's happening in Central and South America is the growth of a Chinese military presence. The a wing of the Chinese people, Army of the People's Republic, or whatever they call it, is now in charge of the Panama Canal. We gave that back. History's greatest monster, Jimmy Carter, gave this back to the Panamanians. Panamanians handed over control to the Chinese a few years ago. It is a branch of the Chinese military that controls it. In Chile, in Peru, in Argentina, in Guatemala, in El Salvador, and several other countries, uh, the Chinese made uh, what appeared to be sweetheart deals to the governments there uh, to help the governments pay off debts and whatnot. And essentially, they operated as loan sharks. And those loans were called in, and the Chinese are taking over mining rights, mineral rights, uh, forest rights, water rights in those countries, and using land to install uh, military outlets, not necessarily bases, but certainly outlets in those countries. The Chinese, in other words, are building a Western Hemisphere presence. We have long had in this country the Monroe Doctrine, established by James Monroe at the founding of this country, the fourth president and fifth president. Um, after Madison, um, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe. And you have had presidents, including John F. Kennedy with the Cuban Missile Crisis, invoke the Monroe Doctrine to basically tell European and Asian powers stay out of the Western Hemisphere. We have largely, since John F. Kennedy, abandoned the whole idea of the Monroe Doctrine. The last president to really try anything with it was Ronald Reagan in the Contra situation. Congress, of course, forced his hand on that one. And so we have foreign powers from Europe and Asia building military presences in the Western Hemisphere, propping up dictators in the Western Hemisphere. And we have the Venezuela situation where the current president of Venezuela, Maduro, has told us to get out. And our response to him is to say, you're not the real president. Guaido is the real president and he's told us to stay. The military backs Maduro. The military can force our hand, show up at the embassy, and either arrest us or put us on a boat or shoot us. If the Marines fire back, well, suddenly we have a hot military crisis in Venezuela uh, requiring our attention. The Russians and the Chinese are taking the side of Maduro. That puts us in a very interesting situation geopolitically around the world. The Western powers, by the way, Canada, the UK, France, uh, a few others are backing us in the situation. Interestingly enough, the president of Brazil is also backing the United States in this. Uh, but one way or the other, we have a very, very, very difficult, tricky matter in Venezuela. If we honor the request of Maduro and leave the country, we're essentially saying that our word is nothing as a country because we've said he's not the president. We should not then honor his request if he's not the president. That's going to ruffle the feathers of Russia and China and some Democrats in Congress. The president has got us into this mess. His advisors are telling him to stand firm. Then here's why. Before I go to break, I got to make this point because it's very important. The reason the president's advisors believe we have to finally take a stand in Venezuela is because Venezuela is largely to blame for the other destabilizing fallouts in Central America causing caravans to come north. If you fix the problem in Venezuela, it sends a strong signal to the leaders in Guatemala, Nicaragua, Honduras, El Salvador, and the like 
that we mean business in the Western Hemisphere, that our attention, long shifted and distracted by the Middle East, is turning back to the Western Hemisphere, and it will incentivize them to start cleaning up the problems causing the caravans. We must deal with the situation in Venezuela if we're to solve the illegal immigration problem long term. But it's going to be a very difficult, tricky, diplomatic, military hurdle for the next 48 to 72 hours. All right, now you can call in. I've had my say on Venezuela. 404-872-0750-1800. WSB Talk, 27 after the hour. Uh, The Venezuela situation is going to shape up over the next 48 hours. What is also shaping up is the government shutdown. The president of the United States uh, signaling that he's willing to make significant compromises with the Democrats. The Republicans in the Senate put forward an immigration plan Uh, coupled with spending to reopen the government that was actually not as loose as what the president wanted. It was actually a little more uh, hardcore, a little to the right of the president on immigration issues, and it failed to get votes. It lost Tom Cotton and Mike Lee of Utah as well, giving the Democrats an opportunity to say the Republicans aren't unified. But Cotton and Lee had had good reasons for not wanting to support it. Um, Tom Cotton in particular has come out and said it's just – he, he thinks the president has gone too far in compromising with the Democrats. Uh, the, the nutshell here is that the government is going to stay closed until they can come up with a compromise. And Democrats in the House are now begging Pelosi to offer the president something. is 38 after the hour. It is Eric Erickson. The phone number is 404-872-0750-1800. WSB Talk. Okay, y'all, I, I need to deviate from the news of the day to have a confessional dad moment. Um, and many of you can perhaps relate. Uh, so on Monday night, the fourth grader announces... That we've got to build a shut up Siri. Uh, we we've got to build a bird feeder. Uh, he's got to have it for school. And I'm thinking, you know what? I can go to the. We've got a, a great store down the road from us that caters to people who love birds. You can get bird feeders, bird seed, you name it. Bird bass. I can go in there. I can get a bird feeder kit. Well, I email the teacher because he's very adamant. She said no kits. I'm like, yeah, there's no way. So I email the teacher, and she says no kits. The project is about, he's in fourth grade, and the project is about uh, making your thing, vision in your head become reality. And so the project involves you've got to draw a reasonable picture of what you want a bird feeder to look like, and then you've got to work with your parents to build the bird feeder. So there's no kit. It's got to be what he drew. I literally had to text the teacher and ask her, did I have to put the neon light sign on the bird feeder? My kid drew a Burger King. And she explained to the kids, if you if you draw it, you got to build it. He drew a freaking Burger King. And instead of Burger King, it was Seed King. I mean, it had a door. It had a drive-thru. It even had a smokestack for the grill. I'm not kidding you. And it had a neon sign on top for the Seed King. So 
teacher and I hit on a compromise. She would send home a new paper. And my instruction to Mike, I'm trying not to use profanity here. I really am. My instruction to my fourth grader was you draw what I build. (laughs) And I'm not a builder. And on top of that, I got a jigsaw, but I don't know where it is. It got borrowed and I can't find it. So all I had was a handsaw. And I got the cheapy lumber from Lowe's, the white pine lumber, and it split. Every time I tried to saw small pieces, it split. I tried to nail some of this, so I had to find the drill. And had to drill holes before I could put in the screws to keep the wood for... And it's basically, it's it's a big 200-pound square. I mean, it's actually, for somebody who is not handy at all, I'm actually pretty impressed with myself. But you need to know something about your host. When I get hungry... I get really, really angry. Everyone who works with me knows this. I have an assistant, Candace, God bless her, when I travel, she has to put on my calendar and the calendars of the people who are traveling with me to make sure that I am eating because she knows what will happen if I don't eat. And it is not a pretty sight. And it is genetic. Everyone in my family is this way. My fourth grader does not get hangry. He gets sadgry. He starts crying and gets very sad. And you get to this irrational point where you're really, really, really angry and nothing sounds good. And so you starve to death because you can't eat. Nothing sounds good and it just makes you even more mad. And you have this circle of rage. This is why I also keep Snicker bars in the, I love frozen Snicker bars and I keep them in my office at WSB because if I get to that point, I at least can get a Snicker bar in me and it'll, it'll help because the commercial is true. The, the hangry commercial from Snickers is screw. So now, now I'm, I'm getting off, off the deep end here. But so I'm out there building this bird feeder and guys, you know what it's like. One of the things you're thinking of is your wife's going to come out there and wonder openly if she might be able to do it better. Or the kid's going to come out and say, Dad, this sucks. Why are you building it like this? I'm out there. It's 42 degrees. The wind is blowing. I'm trying to build the stupid bird feeder. And I literally, and I'm hungry. I haven't eaten. All I can do, and I'm, I'm doing this, by the way, I, I do it until the show. I have to work from home that day. I can't go to the office because i got to build the stupid bird feeder. So I'm building the bird feeder until 3.45, come in here. I do the show until 6, and then I'm back outside building the bird feeder. And, of course, we get to the point where Christy says, what do you want to eat? Well, I don't know what I want to eat. All I do is i got to finish this bird feeder. And it really, I'm so angry and, like, irrational at this point that I go find the charcoal lighter for the grill. And I decide that if anybody comes outside and criticizes at all the bird feeder. I'm going to pour the charcoal lighter on the bird feeder, and I have the firelight stick, and I'm going to set it on fire. That is how I rationalize, because I am hangry. I am hungry. I am irrationally angry, and i got to build the stupid bird feeder. And i got to say, I'm really impressed with my bird feeder. It weighs about 200 pounds. I've never built one in my life. I had to hand saw everything. I had to hand sand everything, because we have sander too. Can't find that. But I got it all together for him. And do you know what my kid tells me? One, he's really impressed with dad's skills. He has no idea how a competent person could have put it together, and I'm not. But more importantly, the next morning, he gets up and he says, that was so fun building that bird feeder. We should do another one. (laughs) I said, what did you do? He said, well, I drilled it. He drilled two holes, people. He put in one screw, and he drilled two holes. And I was there until 9 o'clock building that damn bird feeder. And 
it's going to last. It will last for three weeks. We even got the the wood letters that he's going to paint that say Seed King, and I stapled them on with a stable gun. And I got this bird feeder built, and I am so proud of myself, and it is so, it would win no awards. But my wife was proud of me. My kid was proud of me. I did not set that sucker on fire like I was really thinking I was going to, and I wound up getting tacos that night. So I won. I had to share that story with you. It couldn't wait. I know you wanted to hear the news, but I'm really proud of myself for woodworking a bird feeder, having zero skill and capability of doing it and not setting it on fire like I was really tempted to do. By the way, that that bird feeder had to last for three weeks. It's going to last for a lot longer than that. We're going to hang that sucker in the yard. It may take down the oak tree when we hang it up, but we're going to hang it. Now, let's get to the phones. Josh from Woodstock, you're going to be up first tonight. Welcome. Uh, hi, Eric. Uh, congratulations on your bird feeder, by the way. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> so, you know, I'm listening to the situation that's happening in Venezuela, and uh, I can't help but, you know, think how this is just a perfect example of why the United States has a second amendment. Mm-hmm. Oh, and very much so. Your thoughts on that? Well, you know, it, it's very interesting to meet Josh in that the uh, new president of Brazil is a super fan of the American Second Amendment and has been calling on Brazil to put in a right to bear arms in its constitution. And it said he wants to uh, legalize home firearm ownership and expand the right to keep and bear arms in Brazil uh, because he um, thinks that it not only is it a right to self-protection and people should be able to protect their families, but that it is, for people who think he's going to be a high-handed dictator, it, it's a great restraint. Yes, I think in Venezuela and in other countries like that, you will note that one of the first things to go is the right to keep and bear arms, uh, the confiscation of guns. And when people cannot protect themselves against the government, uh, well, bad things start to happen in governments. No, no one in government starts thinking, what if we decide we want to do something terrible? Nobody starts thinking like that because they're not scared of the citizens. It is actually, can I be diplomatic saying this? It is not a bad thing for the government within reason to be scared of its voters. Many, many, many politicians, I mean, you see this in the Senate with a six-year term, they go to Washington and in Washington they operate one way until the year before they're up for re-election, and then suddenly they start changing their tune to conform to the voters because they're afraid of the voters voting them out of office. Having a little healthy fear and respect of your voters is not a bad thing. And in Venezuela, because the voters cannot defend themselves in any way, shape, or form, the voters cannot take any sort of action, they're not even really voters anymore, the government doesn't fear its people and has turned that country into a communist-style dictatorship and only now are the people starting to take to the streets and the United States is giving them hope. Here's a really important thing for us. Remember in Iran, President Obama did not stand with the people of Iran. Now the Democrats don't want to stand with the people of Venezuela. And it really is. There's a sick partisan divide here. There should be no partisanship over standing with the people of Venezuela, but there is because Trump. It's always because Trump. But we need to stand with those people and we can't let them down. They are starving and dying and we are the breath of freedom that they want to hear and want to support them. We got to do this. We got to see it through. Mm-hmm. 
It is Eric Erickson here, 56 after the hour. The phone number is 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. You know, this this is one of those topics that they tell you you shouldn't dwell on because um, it's not a pleasant topic. And I know some of you have kids in the car. So have you heard about what happened in New York, uh, the law in New York? Um, it is a... Uh, pro-abortion measure and New York is basically now saying that it is legal to have an abortion up until the moment of delivery so that if you head into the hospital to begin delivery and you and I'm I wish I was making this up but I'm not under the the terms of the legislation you head into the hospital um, for delivery and you decide, you know what, I actually don't want this child, uh, you can have an abortion. Even though the child uh, can survive outside the womb. It is, it is a gleeful policy by the uh, legislature in New York to promote abortion rights. Abortion on demand. It used to be under Bill Clinton that abortion was to be safe, legal, and rare, and now it's uh, any time. Uh, you know, Barbara Boxer, the senator from California, has once said that, that abortion should be legal up until the moment the mother comes home from the hospital, meaning post-birth abortion. It, I only bring this up as a measure of how radical the Democratic Party has become. There is an increasing fear in Washington of the president's reelection chances as the Democrats go hard left, uh, that so many people are put off by the president right now that they may go Democrat. And before you call in and say, well, everybody was wrong in 2016, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote in 2016 and she only lost the election because she didn't campaign in Wisconsin, uh, Michigan and Pennsylvania states. She thought she had in the bag. The next Democrats not going to make the same mistake, and they're not going to be as unlikable as Hillary Clinton. You may hate the Democrat, but the president's going to have to work really, really hard to make that person as awful as Hillary Clinton. And, and who knows? He may be able to, but Republicans are starting to get a little bit nervous in Washington over this issue. And I think they have reason to be. Even though the Democrats are going far, far left, I don't think most people understand just how far left the Democrats are going, including on the religious liberty front, which we kind of got to talk about when we come back, and on Stacey Abrams. Ten after the hour, I am Eric Erickson. This is Atlanta's Evening News. The phone number is 404-872-0750-1800. WSB Talk. Uh, Robert Redford, you know, remember him, the actor going into retirement, has an op-ed in the Washington Post uh, that Democrats should give up impeachment uh, fantasies and focus on 2020. Uh, when I was on real time with Bill Maher on Friday, Barney Frank was on there and Barney Frank as well has taken this position. Bill Maher, of course, a uh, very progressive and wants the president impeached yesterday. Um, he, Bill Barney Frank takes the position as well, that if you try to impeach the president, you're not going to be successful. So give it up and, um, move on to 2020. 
the Democrats, of course, are going to go very, very, very uh, to the left in 2020, I would expect. And um, we will see who their nominee is, Kamala Harris. Uh, I would think Kamala Harris is the front runner. She has an action figure out. Yes, some group has done an action figure of Kamala Harris. Um, nope, I'm not making that up. And the Democrats are planning op- uh, opposition research about Joe Biden. And the New York Times, of all things, uh, there's a big story from Alex Burns in the New York Times, good reporter, by the way, uh, and an op-ed, or op-ed, opposition file dump on Joe Biden that he spoke at a group in Michigan that was backed by the family of Fred Upton, a Republican congressman. The Democrats thought they could beat Upton, and Biden praised Upton at this event with Upton in the room, and Republicans ran on that that even Joe Biden liked Upton and Democrats thought they could pick up that seat. They didn't. And now they're blaming Joe Biden. Some of them are at least the Democrats turn against Joe Biden. They really, really, really want to go left. Uh, The big grievance Democrats have with Joe Biden, interestingly enough, is that Biden is considered too centrist now for the Democrats. Yeah. You heard me say that, right? You didn't misunderstand me. They actually believe Joe Biden is too centrist for the Democrats now. And they want someone to go as far left as they perceive Donald Trump has gone to the right. We will see. Uh, Meanwhile, Larry Hogan, Republican governor of Maryland, has started going to Iowa and New Hampshire. Looks like he may want to challenge the president. I don't think that's going to happen. Hogan is not a conservative, and I don't think you can get through a Republican primary uh, as a liberal. We'll see. Now, the shutdown. Uh, There is talk happening now in the United States Senate and the White House on coming up with a deal. Schumer and McConnell are apparently talking. The president is suggesting he wants a down payment on a wall. Now, this this is really important here. Uh, you can't don't have to be a criminologist to understand what's happening here. The president wanted $5.7 billion. He's been very precise and very consistent. He wants $5.7 billion, and suddenly the language is shifting to a significant down payment. In other words, a billion dollars to get it going, I suspect. Uh, and now the president uh, is in the Congress, in the cabinet room telling reporters there are ways to fund the border wall, including without Congress, uh, and says that uh, Speaker Pelosi was reasonable to say the State of the Union needed to wait until the government was reopened. It was her choice. I just really want to thank the Republicans for holding fast in the vote in the Senate today, the president says that he was honored by the Republicans getting to 50, even though they needed 60 votes. A uh, big language shift from the White House this afternoon. I want to segue here. Segue is a bad word for it. Just, just go off script for a moment. Not, not that I read your script, mind you. I have an outline of the show of where I want things to fall and, and trying to be good with time management and everything else. Uh, and we'll take your phone calls as well, 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. Um, the last two weeks have affected me in ways I did not expect to be affected. I'm generally immune, if if only because I live in Georgia, not Washington, immune to the nonsense that goes around up there. Uh, I, I've got a piece up. It'll be my syndicated column today. I've got it up a longer form version of it. At the Resurgent, put up this afternoon. Uh, you can go to theresurgent.com. You know, we, we rebuilt the site, easier to use, better to look at. Uh, you can go check it out. Uh, on the media, I, I have gotten much criticism from many of you for repeatedly defending the press against the president. Uh, I, and I don't really think the press is the enemy of the people. 
At an intellectual level, I don't think the press is out to get me. But the last couple of weeks really making me, uh, one, appreciate even more why some people think the press is the enemy. And, and more and more at an emotional level for me, realize the press really does want to ruin people like me and you for the most part. That they have become insular, that they are in a bubble, and their bubble is very progressive, very secular. They can't relate to people of faith. We started last week with coordinated attacks from the media, including CNN, our hometown uh, international news network, attacking Karen Pence, the wife of the vice president, for working at a Christian school teaching art to students. The outrage is that the school bans gay students. The school doesn't actually ban gay students. The school has a moral code, a moral Christian code, that the students and the parents who go there will subscribe to a Christian worldview, and they will honor that marriage is between a man and a woman, and that sex outside of marriage is prohibited. Now, it's interesting that the media would take uh, sex outside of marriage is prohibited and marriage is between a man and a woman and immediately jump to the conclusion that, well, gay students must be banned. Uh, gay families aren't welcome here. In other words, they're tied to the issue to sex. We hear you can't have sex outside of marriage and marriage is between a man and a woman. Up, oh, no gays allowed. As opposed to this is biblical orthodoxy 101 for over 2,000 years. And they started attacking the school. They started attacking people who go to the school. CNN did this. CNN reporters, not not pundits, not analysts, but actual reporters from CNN did this. The New York Times reporters did this. The Washington Post reporters did this. MSNBC's reporters did this. CBS, ABC, NBC, those, those nightly news programs, they, they did it as well. My kids go to a school with a Christian worldview moral code. I legitimately view the attack on Mrs. Pence and that Christian school as an attack on me and my family because our school goes to a school just like that. We want our children to have a Christian education and be raised with a Christian worldview. That doesn't mean we we go to a school where our kids are taught that the world was created in seven days and, and it's been 6,000 years since man walked the planet. Our school does not do that. But our school does teach apologetics. It does have Bible classes. We don't just memorize a verse a week of the Bible. They got to memorize a passage in catechism. They have to be able to discuss it. They got to be able to explain their faith. And the media attacked that. And then they saw a kid, and it was a kid. And they saw a look on his face, and they judged the kid by the color of his hat. They didn't know who the kid was, but they saw he's wearing a red hat and had what they described as a smirk on the face. There were legitimate news outlets running stories on what the smirk on the kid's face meant, that it was white privilege. They don't know the kid. They got the story wrong to begin with, and they doubled down that it doesn't matter that we got the story wrong. We were morally right. And these were reporters. These weren't pundits. These weren't strategists. These weren't analysts. These were actual news reporters. And I have a harder and harder time rationalizing my need to defend the press from the president's attacks as the press being the enemy of the people with more and more realization that there are more and more people within the press who really are out to get people like you and me, 
who really are out to target Christians and conservatives, who really don't want to understand us, who, who think that we are morally wrong, not factually wrong, but morally wrong. And I think they're morally wrong. And I think we are rapidly moving back to the 19th century pattern of the media where uh, parties, political parties and ideologies control the press. Uh, we don't have an objective press. And while I do not think the press is the enemy of the people, I increasingly believe the press is the enemy of at least half the people. And certainly at one level, at an emotional level, the press certainly doesn't want to understand us. And that's going to lead to a host of bad in this country as the press more and more collapses in its fairness and objectivity. And I totally get why people are so hostile to the press, even if I don't share that hostility. I'm getting there. It's 27 after the hour. Okay, I have a minute, which means I do not have time for your phone calls, but I will take your phone calls. If you will be patient with me, when we come back on the other side, I will take your phone calls, I promise. Uh, in the meantime, Jim Acosta from CNN has a new book coming out, uh, lamenting how difficult it is to tell the truth in the age of Donald Trump. I would be a lot more sympathetic to stories like this in the media if they weren't out there savaging these kids from Covington Catholic. Uh, really, really disappointed in the media attacks. And then Jim Acosta beclowning himself uh, at the border the other week, trying to show it wasn't secure. And when he actually showed that where the wall is, the border's secure, and he wants to come out as some sort of hero in the press. Even people at CNN behind the scenes grumble about him and his ego getting out of control, and that's unfortunate. He's a nice guy, personally. It is 39 after the hour, as promised, going to phones, and we are going to begin with Natalie, who's been waiting very patiently in Atlanta. Welcome to WSB, Natalie. Hi, Eric. How are you? I'm great. How about yourself? Good. I called because I listened to you talk earlier about the legislation that was passed in New York, and I also read um, an article about that this morning and thought um, it, I bared mentioning that it said that you can't have an abortion after 24 weeks unless it was a danger to the mother. Now, I know that's probably a whole other debate, but just wanted to include that because obviously if they made abortion legal before or after 24 weeks, that would be a huge slash. But it's still not legal. You have to have a doctor say that your life. Well, it, but you, you don't have to have it. It's not a doctor. It's the person performing the abortion has to, in their opinion, say uh, that the health of the mother is not in danger, but the health is threatened. So and I, def I definitely think there's a good substantive argument that there needs to be really clear language about that, obviously, so that it wouldn't be arbitrary, but still think it's good that there are some safeguards in place to, to make sure that women can't just on demand go after 24 weeks and say, I want to have an abortion when but the fetus is now, viable. I, I understand why, why you why you think that based on the language, but I, I think it's worth understanding how it's being interpreted from the leader of the state Senate to the governor, to the head of Planned Parenthood, to the head of NARAL are all saying this ensures that women will be able to have abortions up to delivery. Uh, and it's it's all based. So if you go to Planned Parenthood and Planned Parenthood says, yep, you need an abortion, you can get an abortion. It's it's just all the 
all the abortion provider has to do is check a box and say, yep, I think health is in danger. And, you know, according to the medical uh, American Medical Association, uh, giving birth is a is something that puts women's li- uh, health at risk, not life. And that, that's another key language here. It's not puts the woman's life in danger, but puts her health in danger. Sure. Well, hopefully they'll continue to refine that language then. But what I read basically said that you had to be able to prove and have a doctor's recommendation and to sign off on it. And that also the abortion clinics are still held responsible for all of their restrictions as well. So it, it just sounded like to me that there was a lot more red tape. Hopefully there is, but it definitely at least bears mentioning that it's not just flatly legal where you could walk in and hopefully it ne- that never becomes the case. Well, I, I appreciate very much. And, and thank you for that. And you're absolutely right. That That is the language you've, you've got to have a medical provider show that the health of the mother is in danger. The problem with that is as the governor of New York, the state Senate president, uh, the president of Planned Parenthood and the president of NARAL have said is that the abortion provider just has to say it. Uh, you don't need, and this is key under the language of the New York legislation, you don't need a separate doctor's exam before you have an abortion. It is in the view of the person performing the abortion that your health is in jeopardy or your, your health is in danger. And the, the other key language here is health. It's not life. And as Planned Parenthood has said, and as NARAL has said, the, the National Abortion Rights Action League, as uh, the governor of New York have said, as, as plenty of Democratic politicians have said, uh, giving birth puts your health in danger, period. And giving birth puts your health in danger. So by giving birth, your health is in danger. Therefore, your health is in danger because you're pregnant, so you can have an abortion. So don't fall for the the nuances of the legislation uh, to, to try to say this is an abortion on demand because it is when you can go to Planned Parenthood and the person who's going to perform the abortion say, yep, health's in danger. Let's have the abortion. That's what this amounts to. And it, it, it ultimately amounts to abortion on demand. Um, don't fall for the fig leaves because that's what it is. They're fig leaves. I mean, just, just so here's Mother Jones, a reliably uh, progressive publication. The Reproductive Health Act was signed into law Tuesday night by Governor Andrew Cuomo, New York once again led the way on choice and women's rights. Unfortunately, for years, barriers to women's rights were put up. Our state has fallen behind. Today, we're tearing down those uh, barriers. Um, New York, let's see, although it was considered extremely liberal at the time, New York's legislation barred women from terminating their pregnancy after 441. Pay attention to this one. Natalie, particularly, if I hope you're listening. This is from Mother Jones, fairly reliably progressive magazine. The law legalizing abortion in New York was passed in 1970, three years before Roe. It made New York a leader on access to abortion. Although it was considered extremely liberal at the time, it barred women from terminating their pregnancies uh, after 24 weeks unless the woman's life was in danger. The procedure had to be performed by a doctor. After 24 weeks, the law made self-induced abortions a crime and made providing an abortion a felony. Now, what has New York done differently? Well, they have changed it to uh, it's no longer a crime at all. And they've changed the language from the mother's life is in danger to the mother's health is in danger. And as Mother Jones points out, the act of delivering a child 
makes a mother's health be in danger. Consequently, this allows abortion up until the moment of delivery if the abortion provider says that the mother's health is in danger. That's that's Mother Jones. That's the left. That's the governor of New York. The fig leaf cover is the language, health of the mother. And it's a fig leaf because any abortion provider can say, yep, pregnancy puts the mother's life health in danger, so let's kill the kid. And that's unfortunate. Eddie in Doraville, you're next. Welcome. Um, my question for you is, uh, I'm concerned that uh, the way Sam voted with it, you've got the one package the president has signed off on, the Republicans wrote, and then the Democrats in the Senate wrote another one. And there Sam is, you know, saddling up with the, with the uh, Democrats, and it bothers me. Now, you're, you're talking Sam Nunn? Uh, not Sam Nunn, I'm sorry. Uh, Johnny Isaacson. Isaacson. <laughs> <laughs> I had a brain fart. Sorry about that. That's all right. Yeah, but anyway, it really bothers me that, uh, I mean, I, I go way back. I vote, Reagan was the first president I voted for. I'm 62 years old. And we finally got a fighter in the White House, regardless of what people uh, think about him and the never-Trumpers and the Democrats and all that. The thing is, he's fighting. He doesn't get a paycheck. He gives his ch- paycheck to charity every quarter. The guy loves America, and he's trying to, to do what he can to help it. And then you got somebody like Johnny Ison, who, in my opinion, has been up there too long. Uh, it's given me a, uh, you know, I don't like the fact that he voted with the Democrats, and I wanted you to elaborate because you do this every day. You know, yeah, you got more sure. Than I do. Um, so the issue with Johnny Isaacson and, and the reason he voted for the Democrats, and thanks, Eddie, very much for the phone call, is Isaacson just wants the government open at this point. Uh, he thinks the shutdown is hurting families. He he would love to have the border wall, uh, but he wanted to send a signal to the White House that he is willing to open the government uh, because he wants these families to be paid, and the Democratic measure would have only kept it open for three weeks to process paychecks. Um, it, it would have shut down again in three weeks. Uh, that's what I think people are missing about the Democratic plan here wouldn't have permanently reopened the government would have given three weeks for the government to reopen pay workers and then shut back down uh the republican plan would have done basically the same but put a down payment on the border wall and so isaacson wants to pay the workers it's not a permanent opening uh while abandoning the border wall it's just for three weeks and then we can refight it all over again once we pay these people and so he was willing to go in that direction uh david purdue was not Five after the hour. So this weekend, I'm taking my wife to see the 50th anniversary concert for ZZ Top because she's a huge ZZ Top fan. That's all she wanted for Christmas. She hates Vegas. She hates flying. She hates crowds. But she wanted to go to Vegas in the crowds to see ZZ Top. So I'm a loving husband. All right. Let's get another call in here. Joe and Alpharetta, welcome. Thank you, Eric. My question is, why can't the uh, salaries of the congressional staffers be frozen as an incentive for Congress to get their act together? Uh, because the congressional appropriation bill passed last year, uh, and the this is only a partial shutdown. It's not a complete shutdown. And the parts of government whose budgets have already been passed, they're fully funded. And so Congress is fully funded. I think the, the fiscal year ends in October. That's when it renews. So... 
Uh, if the shutdown drags out till October, they will all, including the congressmen, not get paid. Uh, but until such time, actually, I take that back. Um, they they didn't extend it through the fiscal year. So I, it may actually be March. Uh, if the shutdown goes through March, you'll begin, begin to see congressional staffers not getting paid. Uh, but the legislative budget tends to get passed um, on a bipartisan basis and signed by the president, which he did last year. And you got to wait for that fiscal appropriation measure to lapse, and it takes a year for it to lapse, and we're not there yet. Uh, so until then, that part of the government is fully functioning. Oh, yeah, when we get to that point, you will see all sides uh, clamoring for a deal If the longer this thing drags out. Now, CNN has a breaking news alert that the president is going to declare his state of emergency and fund the wall that way. I'll believe it when I see it thus far. The president has been very adamant this is an obligation of Congress. And I can tell you, I've talked to a bunch of people in the White House. And all of them have been fairly unanimous that the president does understand the stakes here. If he declares an emergency and funds the wall that way, he knows that a federal judge will halt it and he will actually get nothing. And that will be deeply problematic for him, particularly as as polling, uh, including the Gallup poll, which is pretty good at this stuff, shows that Republicans are beginning to abandon the president. Some because they think he's gone too far in caving to the Democrats. Others because they think he's being unreasonable. Uh, we're headed into deep political dangerous territory for the president. Stay tuned for more. Mark Aram's up next. <laughs> 